0: Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey.
1: This is a Vault Studios production. I'm Reed Redmond. I'm Will Johnson. The show contains graphic material and is meant for mature audiences. This week on True Crime Chronicles.
2: I always told her that I was afraid that
3: she might meet a wrong person. And she's so openly friendly with
2: everybody.
1: This week on True Crime Chronicles, we have a bit of a different episode for you. First, Will is going to be interviewing two crime reporters from Tennessee about a missing persons case from the Knoxville area. Then to close out the year, Will and I are going to share a few big updates on cases we've covered in 2021. But before we get to all of that, I'll mention we're going to be taking one week off for the holidays so there will not be a new episode Monday, December 27th. If you're in need of something to listen to over the holidays, you can check out our daily podcast, The Daily Crime, which has put out over 200 episodes this year. Otherwise, we'll be back on schedule right here on True Crime Chronicles the following week. And with that, I'll turn it over to Will with this week's case. Bonnie Drain went
3: missing from Knoxville, Tennessee back in December of 2017.
1: She was a great person. Uh, She was like my best friend. Loved all of her grandkids. She wouldn't just vanish without telling us or calling us
3: and it turns out that she went missing around the same time that two other people vanished from the area i'm joined by leslie Ackerson, anchor and reporter at wbir in knoxville tennessee and also john north investigative journalist at wbir thanks to both of you for being here
4: we're happy to be here again
3: thank you will good to talk to you let's start tell me about what happened or what we know about what happened when bonnie drain was last seen uh four years ago right
4: Four years ago, uh, this December, another Christmas's family is expecting to spend without a mother, without uh, this daughter. Bonnie had several kids, but she was kind of known a little bit to disappear be a floater at times. She had struggled with addiction in the past, but her family did keep up with her pretty regularly. Her daughter, Carly, told us that they would FaceTime every day and talk every day. She saw her mother, Lucille, regularly. But uh, around the last couple weeks of December, they kind of lost contact with her. It slowly started to alarm them, not right at first, because Bonnie had a different kind of lifestyle. They didn't always talk to her, but when they all started realizing nobody had heard from her, they started to get really worried.
2: The family, Bonnie's family, knew of some of her friends, maybe not all of them, and although they didn't think anything about it, they actually had had some contact with the two other missing people, or at least one of the other missing people, who is a a, now, you know, linked to Bonnie, and that was on that night that you mentioned, Will, that she was last seen, at least according to police. She'd gone to visit a relative who'd been shot at, uh, who was being treated at the hospital, and as they were leaving the hospital, according to Bonnie's mom, Lucille, they're walking out to the car, and there is Brenda Carroll. Now, Lucille didn't know Brenda Carroll, but Brenda Carroll was there apparently waiting for Bonnie, and Lucille said to Bonnie, Bonnie, who is this? And, Bonnie said, oh, she's a friend, Mom. She's okay. She's a good person. And Lucille didn't think anything about it. Of course, now we know in retrospect that very soon after that night, probably within days, those two women and a third man named William Inkelbarger would disappear, and they've never been heard from since. And uh, we'll get back to these two other missing individuals. But let me ask you,
3: before before we do that, so Bonnie's family reports her missing soon after she goes missing, right? And then eventually her car is found.
2: Right. They, they became concerned pretty quickly because, as Leslie said, they'd been in regular contact with her. She had an extended family. She had grandchildren. She was a good mom and a good grandmom to them looking after them. So it, they reported her missing in mid-January, and they're the ones who discovered her Honda, which uh, was found in a parking lot at an apartment complex in a part of North Knoxville here. And they, it was just sitting there abandoned. The seat had been moved far back. It was a lot farther back than Bonnie would have sat in. So they knew somebody else had been driving it.
3: And it then took a while, correct me if I'm wrong, for police to collect that car's evidence. Is that right?
4: I believe it was four months, they had the car towed themselves. The family did back to an aunt's house, I believe it was, and it sat there. And then a couple months later, police came and wanted to look at the car, towed it away, and they haven't seen it since. But, you know, four months of delayed time that if there was anything, evidence, I mean, what happens in that time?
3: And then years have gone by. Has any other evidence appeared or has the investigation, Does it, as, as far as the family is concerned, it seems like it stalled to some extent that they didn't get a lot of traction on it, and at times they felt like that was due to the fact that, that Bonnie Drain had addiction issues and maybe she was being overlooked.
2: I think what this case demonstrates, Will, is that when you're talking about people who maybe live on the edge or are not people of means, uh, maybe people who sometimes get into petty crime Society doesn't necessarily care about them, and the police already have plenty to worry about. So, unfortunately, these three folks may have been engaged in drug use, some of them at least had uh, committed some kinds, according to the police, petty crime. so they weren't so much on anybody's radar. They also may have been arguably loners.
1: She's an addict, so I don't feel like they're putting as much effort as they would if it was somebody else.
2: She cared about everybody. I mean, she had her own demons, you know, but who don't? She doesn't deserve to just be out there on her own. So that's kind of what it appears to be happened here. There wasn't a whole lot that developed in this case. Uh, I'm not sure, uh, although Bonnie's family has been pretty vocal, I'm not sure a lot of people paid attention to it. And for Leslie and I, this case just kind of I think a couple years ago, Knoxville police uh, issued sort of not cryptic, but kind of vague alert that, hey, there are these three people missing in case you hear anything. And then suddenly we had a man named Jeremy Hardison convicted of uh, murder in September. And the DA's office suddenly says, oh, by the way, he's a person of interest in these other disappearances. So
3: these other two missing person cases, their, their bodies haven't been found.
2: No,
4: nothing of the other two that we know of, of, of Brenda or Inkle Barker.
3: Do we know what kind of connection they may or may not have had with Bonnie Drain?
4: I know Brenda had been, uh, John mentioned earlier, so the first time that Lucille, Bonnie's mother, met Brenda was a couple days before she disappeared, and Bonnie told her they had known each other long, with they were friends. That's kind of all that's known about their connection. Uh, they may have stayed in a hotel together and resided with each other for some time, but I don't think there's a lot known about the relationship or why the three of them ran together.
2: Well, we are inferring that these three did know each other fairly well, you know, maybe from a street point of view, if you will. Also, as as Lucille recalled, Bonnie did consider Brenda a friend, and I believe the family said they understood that Brenda had dated uh, Jeremy Hardison.
3: When police came out, so they made some type of announcement, it sounds like, that this guy may be a suspect in these three missing persons cases.
4: Yes. Yeah, so the uh, we actually have it right here. The uh, Excuse me. The Knox County Attorney General, Sharm Allen, put this out, and the family told us, They didn't get any heads up before this came out either. I think they saw it on the news that their mother had been tied possibly to this convicted criminal. And what I thought—I remember thinking was interesting when we first saw it is that the DA said that she hoped someone might come forward about the three missing people now that Hardison was in custody— which makes you think he's a pretty dangerous guy if he's been convicted of these other murders, too. And now they're hoping, well, now that he's behind bars, maybe people feel comfortable and safe to come forward. But we did reach back out to the DA's office and to our local law enforcement, and they, at least what they were willing to share, told John and I that, they didn't have any updates in September on anyone, any any tips, anything.
2: Both the DA's office and the Knoxville Police Department said they had not really gotten anything of substance. And as Leslie said, I think what they were hoping is that people who know Hardison would feel comfortable now that he is in prison for the rest of his life on this latest murder conviction, that they could feel comfortable that they might be able to come forward. But uh, based on the court records, Hardison is a man who has got charges and convictions going back at least 20 years. So he, he is not, um, he's in his 40s now. He is not a man who is known for being the nicest person in the world, shall we say.
3: And the murder for which he has been convicted and he is now behind bars,
2: for when did that take place? That was in 2017. That was in September of 2017. Sounds like a pretty kind of frank, brutal, I'm going to take care of you kind of homicide. It was a shooting. And as Leslie mentioned, he also was alleged to have committed a murder in 2001 when he was a much younger man. And he ended up pleading to, I think it was uh, involuntary manslaughter on that case. So he's been in prison off and on for at least the last 15 years. So just, but just
3: to put the Timeline together then, he was convicted of a murder that happened in September of 2017. Bonnie Drain and two others go missing in December of that year. Correct. It, it sounds like there's a lot of moving pieces to this case, a lot of people involved. And what have you heard recently, if anything, and what do you see as next steps? He's been named as a, as a possible person of interest or a suspect?
4: I think the family is just hoping to get more communication from law enforcement over what they're doing. No updates on the car. They didn't feel like they really got a heads up about the connection potentially with Hardison. I think they just kind of feel left behind and they do feel like regardless of her past or what Bonnie's life looked like, she deserves to have the attention that other people had. You know, John mentioned that these three people kind of just went under the radar because of their lifestyle a little bit, but you know, she was a mother, she was a daughter, she was a grandmother. She's very sorely missed by this family. So I think they're just hoping for any answers. And they did say when the release came out about Hardison that I think it was a little hard to hear because they've always kind of hoped that she might be alive and she still might be, but this kind of left them with a little bit of a sick feeling that that might not be the ending they they come up with. So for them, they're just waiting for answers. For the DA's office and KPD, it didn't sound like anything new had happened, but sometimes this stuff just seems to take a long time.
2: This might be one of those cases, Will, where it gets resolved when some human remains are found, and that's unfortunate that I have to say that. But, you know, I don't have to tell you, three people don't just vanish without reason, without explanation, And especially when they are three people who knew each other and may have spent time together and may have a connection to a single person who also happens to have a pretty bad criminal record. So if nobody who knows the person of interest, Jeremy Hardison, is going to come forward, and if he's not going to say anything and he's in prison, then your best hope might be for forensics.
3: And just to clarify, I I, I did mention him as a person of interest or... Possible
2: suspect, but he's only been named as a person of interest at this point, right? That's correct. There's been no charge whatsoever filed against him that we're aware of in connection with uh, Bonnie Drain or William Inkelbarger or, or Brenda Carroll. Forgive me if
3: you've mentioned this, but police have police said anything about why they might connect him to these three?
2: No, Nothing. No, I think you know. The truth is, I suspect they—they they know. Well, they do know a lot more than they're saying. The family has told us more about this case than KPD has. So, yeah. sure, you can bet that if the if investigators have walked streets, talked to witnesses, talked to people who knew them, they know more than they're sharing. They're going to know more specifics, probably about the connections that Brenda Carroll and Bonnie Drain and William Inkelbarger might have had with Jeremy Hardison. But they're not. They're not sharing that with us now.
4: Hardison did have a street name, I guess, is what he goes by. Big Country was what he was known as. And when the release came out, Bonnie's family members told us they had heard that name before. And that was a name they had mentioned to police. Uh, And John mentioned that Bonnie, that the friend Brenda Carroll potentially may have dated Jeremy Hardison, known as Big Country. So that name had been tossed out four years ago, the family said.
2: Uh, When we talked to... Um, Bonnie's family, Lucille, was very reluctant to talk too much about big country, but she said she had heard that nickname and had asked Bonnie about it, and Bonnie acknowledged she didn't know who that person was. John North and Leslie Ackerson at
3: WBIR in Knoxville, Tennessee, thank you so much for talking to us about this case. We'll keep an eye on this one, and we should let our listeners know you, you both have your own podcast covering other cases in the area, right?
4: That's right. Uh, We have Appalachian Unsolved, which focuses on cases here in East Tennessee, all different counties around this area, whether it's Jane or John Doe's, missing persons, homicides. We'd love to uh, have you listen. And maybe if you have any answers, recognize anything, get some good tips into law enforcement.
3: Great. We urge our listeners to uh, find that wherever they listen to podcasts. John and Leslie, thanks again.
4: Thanks, Will. Thank you. Appreciate it.
0: Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy?
1: As we mentioned at the top of the episode, there have been a handful of significant updates over the past year on cases that we've covered, and we wanted to make sure we shared them with you. Will, first up, there's been a verdict in the Kimberly Kessler trial in Florida. It's a case you covered on episodes 106 and 107. Tell us, what was Kessler standing trial for? She was
3: charged with first-degree murder and the killing of Jolene Cummings, uh, a mother of three. This happened back in 2018 when Jolene Cummings disappeared. And as you mentioned, we did cover this on, on the show back in June of this year. Jolene Cummings worked with Kimberly Kessler at a hair salon in Yulee, Florida. And the last time she was ever seen was potentially by Kimberly Kessler, who worked with her there on a Saturday afternoon, is our understanding, from according to police documents. Jolene Cummings was never seen again after that day. Kimberly Kessler, however, was spotted getting out of Jolene Cummings' SUV uh, shortly after her disappearance on video. There was surveillance video from a, a parking lot near near uh, a shopping area. So she was arrested after seen getting out of Jolene Cummings' SUV, but still there was no body back in 2018. She was eventually charged with Jolene Cummings' murder. It wasn't long after that arrest that she was charged. As it turns out, Kimberly Kessler had dozens of aliases she had lived in cities around the u.s. and gone by a lot of different names Uh, and in fact she used a different name when she worked at that hair salon with jolene cummings but it turns out that her name was kimberly kessler Uh, she was charged with murder and then over the past years since since that arrest and since she was charged her ability to stand trial has been a major issue her mental competency primarily there have been repeated outbursts at hearings over the months leading up to the recent trial and also behavior uh, behind bars that has led uh, people to question whether she should actually st- stand trial. She was removed from the courtroom on on many occasions. However, a judge determined that she was competent to stand trial, and uh, the trial just took place recently.
1: So this trial was? finally able to happen, what did the jury decide at the end of the day?
3: Well, just last week, Kimberly Kessler was found guilty, first-degree murder in the killing of Jolene Cummings. Uh, Her sentencing hearing is now set for January 27th. My understanding is that it can only be a mandatory life in prison. And actually, we heard from the Nassau County Sheriff speaking outside the courthouse after the trial. I don't believe this is her first murder. Mm -hmm. I don't at all. She's evil, she's evil in the flesh. Also speaking to reporters on that same day outside the courthouse in Florida, Jolene Cummings' mother, Ann Johnson. Praise God that we got the verdict and that it gives us some type of closure. While my daughter Jolene has not been found, we have at least the verdict of the indictment a first-degree premeditated murder. If you could find it within your heart to tell us where the remains of my daughter, where are the remains of my daughter? Give us some closure. Up next, an update related to the case of Jamie Faith, a Dallas man who was shot to death while out for a morning walk with his wife. Reed, remind us where we left off with this one.
1: Yeah, when we covered this case back on episode 94, we heard from Jennifer Faith the wife of James Faith, who spoke to WFA's Alex Razier, a couple months after her husband was shot to death. Here's a clip from that interview.
4: I just hope that at some point, maybe this person can recognize the gravity of what they've done and feel some sort of guilt enough to come forward.
1: Well, after that interview, an ex-boyfriend of Jennifer's, a man named Darren Lopez, was eventually arrested and charged with James Faith's or Jamie Faith's murder. And at that point, we also learned about pretty extensive communications between Jennifer and Darren Lopez before and after Jamie was killed. You might remember that one of the main pieces of evidence that investigators say ended up leading them to Darren Lopez was a Texas Ranger sticker on the back of his truck. Uh, it, It turns out shortly before he was arrested, police say he and Jennifer were texting back and forth about taking that sticker off of the truck. Where things stood at the end of our episode on this case, Jennifer had been arrested, but at that point only on a federal charge of obstruction of justice. And Reed, where do things stand now? Well, Jennifer Faith is now facing a charge of murder for hire in the death of her husband. Federal authorities have actually said she was the one pulling the strings to make this happen. Here's more on that from Alex Rozier's coverage of the latest development for WFA. Police say she was having an affair with her ex-boyfriend, Darren Lopez, and she encouraged him to kill her husband, Jamie Faith. Court documents say Jennifer created Gmail accounts under her husband and friend's names, then sent emails to her ex posing as her husband and friend, alleging Jamie was physically and sexually abusing her. Police say he was not. According to the documents, Jennifer wrote an email to her ex posing as her friend saying, quote, I know I won't feel better about her situation until she is out of the house away from him or she lets me put a bullet in Jamie's head. Last October, detectives say Jennifer's ex drove from Tennessee to Texas and shot and killed Jamie Faith while he walked his dog, one day after his 15th wedding anniversary.
3: Reed, this is a federal charge, as I understand. What is the possible sentence here?
1: Yeah, according to WFAA, federal murder for hire carries a punishment of up to the death penalty. And I'll mention that that Darren Lopez is facing a state murder charge, so a little different there, as well as a federal gun charge. So There's a lot to keep following as both of their cases move forward. We do have one other case out of Dallas with some recent news, the Carla Walker case that we covered all the way back on episode 72. And that was a case that it was cold for decades. And then there was a DNA breakthrough a couple of years back, right?
3: Yeah, that's exactly right. Let me just remind our listeners what we know about this case. Back in February of 1974, Carla Walker was sitting in a car with her boyfriend in a parking lot. This was just after a Valentine's Day dance back in 1974. And according to police, a suspect grabbed her and her boyfriend from the car. The boyfriend was pistol whipped and left there, and Carla was abducted. Three days later, her body was found in a culvert. This was just a a tragic, horrible story. Uh, Carla Walker, just a a teenager at the time when, when this happened. And then after nearly... 50 years, advanced DNA evidence led to an arrest. So, you know, clearly they had an article of clothing that had a little bit of DNA on it or just enough so that when uh, DNA technology got to the point where a complete genetic profile could be developed, they were able to do that. They were then able to get some DNA from the person who they believed matched this DNA. His name was Glenn McCurley, Fort Worth, Texas. He was 77 years old at the time when he was arrested in September of 2020. So they were able to match the DNA. They grabbed, I believe, some trash from outside of his house and made that match. And he was charged with capital murder and the abduction, torture, rape, and slaying of 17-year-old Carla Walker. So, yes, back to your original question. After decades, uh, they finally had a suspect.
1: What's happened since then, since Glenn McCurley was arrested and charged? So McCurley, as
3: I mentioned, arrested back in 2020. He actually confessed to police during an interview uh, along the way. And then just recently, back in August of this year, uh, he went on trial. That video was played at his trial in August. But then on day three of the trial, he shocked everybody when he switched his plea to guilty for the abduction, rape, and murder of Carla Walker back in 1974. So again, he... He changed his plea, and he was immediately sentenced to life behind bars.
4: I wish you had done this a long time ago. I want to know, if you've done this to anybody else, you need to bring that out, because those families need to know, too.
3: And Reed, one more case we wanted to share some news on for this episode. It's another one we covered just a couple months back, actually, on episode 120 of True Crime Chronicles. Case involving Steve Pankey, who was accused of killing twelve-year-old Janelle Matthews in 1984, and this was the episode our listeners will remember, hopefully, where we featured an at times bizarre interview that a local news reporter in Idaho conducted with Pankey.
1: Read what's going on with this case now. Well, the week that we put out that episode was, if I'm remembering right, the same week that the trial against Steve Pankey was set to begin in Colorado, and that trial ended in a partial mistrial. The only charge that the jury was able to reach a decision on was a charge of false reporting to authorities, which Steve Pankey was convicted of. But they weren't able to reach a decision on the bigger charges, which were murder and kidnapping. One of the the pivotal moments of the trial uh, was when Pankey decided to take the stand and he was questioned for the majority of two full days. He testified that he had nothing to do with the murder. That He'd lied in the past in some of his previous statements to investigators when he would uh, in one case, requested immunity in exchange for information he said he had about the location of Matthew's body, and he tried to explain away some of the other bizarre statements he's made over the years about the case, but again, denied involvement, and and it ended in that partial mistrial, and to be clear, that that's not the same as an acquittal on the kidnapping and murder charges, so... Uh, the latest where things stand is that prosecutors are planning to seek a retrial. So more to come on this case as well.
3: All right. And just a reminder to our listeners, we will not be here next week. We'll be back in two weeks with a new case and new story. And thanks to all of our listeners for listening in 2021. If you're a new listener or have been listening for a while, we appreciate you joining us every week here for cases from around the country. And read you can let folks know about our daily show if they are not already aware of it.
1: Yeah, we have a daily podcast that Will and I co-host called The Daily Crime. As I mentioned at the very top of this episode, over the past year, we put out over 200 episodes, different interviews. So if you're looking for something to listen to over the holidays while True Crime Chronicles is off, you can go back through all those 200 episodes. All right. Thanks, Reed. We'll be back in two weeks with a new case and a new story.